Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Lights Out, Down Under. In our deep dive, should the duopoly of Google and Facebook pay the entities featured on their pages in order to drive a healthier ecosystem? Or should a more absolute market-driven economics prevail? And in Courage or Cringe this week, has Marr met his maker? Megyn Kelly versus the media and New York Times fires journalist. What should the orientation on the subject of race be? Colorblind or colorful? What responsibility do the media have for physical and even violent outcomes in society? And is it a good idea to make an example of journalists when they let their lack of impartiality show? This and more on this week's episode of TDR. Jesus, welcome to a chillier version of TDR this week. Chillier just of the weather? Is that what you're saying? In terms of the weather in Los Angeles. Yes, it's a big deal. We've had rain. It's been cold. It's like it's like it's almost winter, which is very disappointing here. I like it when it gets cold, though, although it's a little bit uh, chillier in the studio today than it normally is. But by the time we get done, there's always some heat that uh, that comes out, but also a lot of light. So I'm sure we'll uh, we won't disappoint in that regard. But um, anyway, it's nice. I I I, uh, I dig it. Tons uh, tons to talk about this week. We're gonna endeavor to try to keep this as a compact one hour show. We'll see. We'll see how good we do. I, I still have my hope, Jesus. Yeah, we'll, we'll see good. if we get there. So we got a lot to we got a lot to start with. And before we got into our deep dive, though, I did want to uh, point out our sponsor for this week's episode of TDR, and that is BrandStorytelling.tv. BrandStorytelling.tv uh, is an organization, a B two B organization. Many of the folks listening will probably be familiar with it, but basically that brings folks together around the idea of branded content and branded entertainment. So marketers and under, other industry folks, um, you know, have, they meet, they have events, they have curricula. Obviously, in the time of COVID, most of this has been online, and they really interact around the idea of how storytelling applies to the brand and the marketing world. Now, they're a good organization. You guys should check them out just in general. But it happens that today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, we're recording this the day before, but if you're listening to this um, tomorrow on Wednesday, 
there is a panel called The Impact of Diverse Storytelling in which we are playing a part. Uh, so very excited to, to actually promote that. Uh, the Impact of diverse, diverse Storytelling is a panel with the actor Richard Cabral, who some of you guys may know from uh, the show on FX Network called Mayans MC. And it's also moderated by Megan Finnerty, who is a USA Today, actually a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist from U- USA Today. And she's incredible people, but she's uh, she's a, a super dynamo in terms of uh, a facilitation and moderation. So I'm sure it's going to be an incredible panel to experience. I will be on the panel as well, which is going to be awesome. And also we have uh, Veronica Leone, who is a producer and a creative director here in Los Angeles, who's really good at creating brand storytelling. So it's myself, Richard, um, and Veronica on this panel, moderated by Megan Finnerty. You're going to find out all about uh, diversity in storytelling and what it can actually mean for brands. It should be a really interesting uh, conversation. You can find out more just by going to brandstorytelling.tv. So go to brandstorytelling.tv. And there on the right-hand side, you'll see the information for this panel, Diversity in Storytelling. And that panel is going to be um, up and running at uh, at 3 o'clock Eastern time tomorrow, Wednesday, the Uh, the 27th, 27th, uh, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. The Impact of Diverse Storytelling, again, moderated by Megan Finnerty, Pulitzer Prize winner, and featuring Richard Cabral, yours truly, Charlie Echeverry, and Veronica Leone. Really uh, open to anybody and hope you guys get a chance to check it out. But thank you to our friends at brandstorytelling.tv for their sponsorship of TDR. All right. I think we're ready, Jesus. I've got my, I got the armor on. I've got a weapon of choice. I'm ready to have this conversation. (laughs) And Google, again, makes one of our... I mean, they're a theme, right? Obviously, look, there's been a lot of talk that we've we've we obviously it's been discussed not just here but everywhere as it relates to um you know uh you know freedom of speech and how much it gets regulated um there's all kinds of you know issues that have been brought up around google and facebook in terms of how much of a monopoly they each are so we thought you know we saw this headline and we thought it was really interesting what's happening not here in the u.s but actually in australia and part of the reason i want to talk about this is we think this could be maybe an early indicator of the types of issues that are going to be, um, you know, be hitting here in the U.S. At, at some future period in a really interesting topic in terms of how to regulate or how to, yeah, how to regulate these different uh, social media platforms. Um, so let's get into that one. So in sure. Australia, there is legislation that is currently being considered by their parliament that would force Google and Facebook uh, to enter into negotiations with basically news media companies for payment for content, right? Uh, meaning that, you know, like typically when you go on Google and you, and you search um, news, you'll get, of course, you, you know, you get like headlines from different different places, including both national, local news, global news, whatever may be the case. And what they're saying is in Australia, like, hey, anytime you feature, so you feature news from our, our local news from Australia, we think that those news companies should be able to get compensated for being part of your search results in Google or part of your fee in feed for Facebook, right? Now, as part of this deal, they're saying that in a case where no deal can be reached, by uh, can be reached, an arbiter will ultimately decide the payment amount. Right um, now, of course, as expected, the the tech giants are not taking this move lightly, not happy, and are fighting back. Right, mm-hmm. so Google has already threatened to remove the Google search engine from Australia. Right. So that's what, and then Facebook. Uh, by the way, has that ever happened before? Where I mean, to your knowledge, that that Google said, "Hey, we're just out. We're out of this whole country." 
Well, no, typically, no, because I think whenever it's, it's there's been restrictions, it's more because the countries, I think China would be the perfect example, right. where the country restricts them from going in there. Right? These companies are all global, right? So their, you know, their objective is almost always to continue to grow, Expand and not, more not the other way around, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, I haven't heard of this. So that's, it is interesting, right? Uh, and one other kind of just helpful piece of context for those who may not know, and I mean, most people listening to this podcast have some you know, um, ability in the kind of advertising world. But um, if you're not, you know, a lot of local media, especially, you know, publishers, journalists, whatever, um, local media companies have obviously been dramatically impacted by the by the Facebook and Google and, and Amazon, even to some extent, um, economies that have flourished, right? They've, a lot of local advertisers usually represent the lifeblood for local media. And a lot of local advertisers now spend most of their budgets on, on Facebook search, et cetera. Yeah. So they've kind of, they're no longer doing well, as much radio yeah. and print and that kind of thing. Well, news in general as an industry was massively impacted by, by, by the web in general, right? right. Google, social media, social networks and, and kind of across the board. I think news overall, and especially to your point, local news, right? Which is part of the reason why so many of the bigger national outlets move to subscription models, right? Like, you know, we hear reference a lot of a lot of time New York Times. And in New York Times, you know, to their credit, they've done a lot into reinventing their business model, a lot of which is now based on subscriptions, right? Yeah. So that's happened across the board. It's much harder, of course, for a local uh, news organization to put in a subscription-based model because it's just it's just a harder value proposition for, for users to want to actually pay a, a monthly you know fee to to, be able to access those kind of news. So they're you know they've been in trouble for a while. Mm-hmm. So this in many ways feel like a response to that. So as I was saying, so Google already threatened right to remove the Google search engine from Australia, and Facebook also threatened to remove news from the Facebook feeds of all Australian users. So simply saying like, great, you want us to pay for that content? Yeah, we don't have to show that content. Like that's right, fine. Right. Right. We we get enough cat videos on. You know, I'm joking, but we get enough other stuff that we don't really need the the local you know Australian news. By the way, and this actually follows news that Google is already experimenting with hiding some Australian news sites from search results, right? Yeah. Which isn't something that they published, right? I mean, it's something that people found out. Yeah, people found out. Yeah. And of course, people were really freaked out about that because like, wow, it kind of shows the power of these different platforms that, sure. hey, if they don't like the terms that you're trying to put forth, they're like, well, we don't have to feature it, mm-hmm. right? So then that happens. Um, now, according to Josh uh, Freibender, who's the treasurer for Australia, he said a couple of things. One, that the government had worked with the Australian competition regulator for two years, developing this code, right, to see the digital giants pay for original content that is generated by our media businesses, mm-hmm. right? So this code meaning like the, the rules that they're going to use in terms of how these organizations actually get paid. Um, he also has accused the tech companies of changing the goalposts, right? Because they first apparently opposed the government's proposal of a final uh, offer arbitration and now opposing paying for clicks on media content displays in search results, right? Mm-hmm. So typical, which, you know, that's that would be probably the most equitable way to do it, which is like, hey, if people click on the content, then, you know, then that, that news organization should get, should get paid for that, for that, for that traffic, right? They, they get, they get shipped, you know, sent over. And then also noted the government's position was supported by media companies and public polling. Sure. Um, also, people found it really disturbing that Australian news could be removed from the news feed. So, it, it, uh, by the yeah. way, those those last, <laughs> I find that last comment kind of funny in terms of, of course, it's supported by the government. Of course, it's supported by media companies, mm-hmm. right? And to the extent, I think public polling, which I think one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about that. Yeah. But this whole issue that, oh, we're so you know shocked that they could be removed from the, from the news feed. Well, 
yeah, like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, if Look, Facebook all, doesn't yeah. like it, they're just not going to show it, you know? All of this is, you know, part and parcel to the same issue that we continue to discuss whenever these guys come up, is that they're one part publisher, one part platform, and they're like electricity, right? They're everywhere. So people can at the same time be offended and dismayed and outraged when stuff is being done behind the scenes that limits their visibility to their own feeds. And at the same time, you know, they can have other perspectives on what Facebook or Google should or shouldn't do with respect to editorial guidelines or curation or moderation. But it's all driven by the same thing. It's like these guys are a little bit of everything. And it's just really hard to put them in a given category. And that's part of their problem. Yeah, well, they've had so much success that it, it sort of, yeah, it kind of... And I want to talk about it, that. It, it breaks the trend of how, you know, many private companies, you know, typically would, would be handled. So just to finish off the... the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Facebook has called the code unworkable in its current form and actually asked for six months grace periods to negotiate deals with news companies. So it sounds like at least Facebook is open to do these deals, but is looking for more time, Right. For Google, which which I thought was a little more hilarious, is they said, one, they could actually accept arbitration as a backstop to secure investment in news. But think that the model is flawed because it only considers the cost for news companies and not Google's cost. Right. Which is like, that's a great argument. Poor Google. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, you're not going to see all of our costs that we're incurring. You're going to win over a lot of people with that argument. It's costing us too much money. It's costing us too much money. So, look, uh, a lot here to unpack, Charlie. Yeah. Um, I guess. When when you when you sort of start mm-hmm. seeing this, what is the first thing that sort of pops to your mind in terms of some of the issues here, either for yeah. or against this argument of, of having Google and Facebook? Well, pay it's funny because when this for, for news when for this news topic content. came up, right? We even kind of debated whether or not, like, hey, this is Australia. Should we even right. talk about this? But then, even in our little preamble discussion, we're we like, well, there's actually a lot d- debating it really quickly, right? I was like, there's actually a lot to talk about here. Here's, I mean, like the part that I like the most about this story is it's a it's a total and radical about face to the understood kind of construct that is that we've all come to understand with Google in particular, right? Which is which is this. Google gives you a free service as a consumer, gives you a free service basically in exchange for accepting advertising, right? So in other words, right. you can search for whatever you want and you can deliver advertising. Now, I know in this case we're talking about also content, not necessarily advertising, but it's the same kind of principle. So, I get a free service, I'm the consumer, you get to deliver advertising to me and I have to live with that. And hopefully the advertising is relatable or whatever. So it's all good. But the value in the free service is actually the information that's on that service that is curated and organized. In other words, like I as a consumer wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for the fact that I could expect to find a lot of relevant information on there. Right. Right. So even if someone never, even if I never click on a link, I never click on a link. I go to Google News all the time. That's what I showed you yesterday, right? Yeah. So I go to Google News and it kind of curates the world's news on one page, right? But if I never click on any page or any any link, the fact that there is an article there from the New York Times, from the Chicago, whatever, from the Australian newspaper, the fact that they're there is part of the value proposition as to why I'm there as a consumer. So to the extent I click on anybody's ads that are on that page, a lot of it is because of those people who are there. And what's interesting, the most interesting thing to, uh, to me about this is the fact that what these guys are fundamentally saying is like, hey, listen, 
we, we shouldn't be paying Google when people click on us. Google should be paying us when people click on stuff. And I was like, that's a complete above about face into the whole way that this is the model, a, a, yeah. the model has historically been. But if you really think about it from a value standpoint, again, the consumer reason for going to Google is because I expect the content will be there. And the content that's there is not getting any value to those content providers unless I act on that content. And what I'm saying is there's this like pre-value phase that I'm not getting as a as a content creator, I'm not right. getting any value for. That to me is interesting. And the fact that these guys are saying, we're going to turn that thing around on its head. Because I think if, if Google gives into this, there's going to be a lot more of this in other parts of the world. Oh, I, I think they, they should be very, they, which they are, very concerned about not letting this happen. Because it completely changes the model for them. You know, Google's whole mission has been to, as a matter of fact, when they started the company, the, the whole idea was to organize the world's information, right? Mm-hmm. And to their credit, I think they've done a great job of that in terms of being able to access all types of different information. What I found really interesting, the point, the point that you're making, is that when you think about the value that is being generated, you know, you almost have to parse out the value between the headline versus the actual content within that headline, that, right? That's the interesting part. And that, that is actually super, yeah. I hadn't thought about this when we first started talking, I hadn't thought about it that way um, as much. And I've been reflecting this conversation because I, I like many of these things, I kind of go back and forth in mm-hmm. terms, I could see myself arguing both sides, which is kind of what makes it kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said about when you think about the value being created, how much of the value can we can we put on simply the headline Versus the content, and I could I could see myself even arguing that I would I would start to weigh more value on the headline than even the content because how much news do we consume now on social? I think Facebook that's is probably the, even, the best example. That's an even better point that how I hadn't much, even thought about. Yeah, how yeah. much how much news do we consume on Facebook that is simply just the headline? In fact, we complain headline, about it. Headline, I would say headline was maybe like a really brief. Yeah, subtext little, of, yeah. of, of description but basically share without text. ever looking at the total now that's a problem but that's also a reality of how the dynamic that people actually have now that has been created frankly created and facilitated it's so true you by, know, by these search by, by these social platforms and, and search platforms and it's, it's actually in many ways has actually removed some of the value of the content itself that lives in its root source which will be in those in these you know news organizations this is why these conversations are fun now I'm, I'm you're making a point. I'm making your point. I was. I, was, I, was saying, I came I'm, in to I'm bringing, defeat you. I'm bringing you over to my side, Jesus. But it's I'm not, so, I'm not quite there yet. But it's I, so. But, um, but it's so true what you yeah. just said. Like I had thought about it just strictly from the sort of philosophical perspective of my my headline to use your your term is there. But I hadn't looked at it. The value of the headline itself in the world that we live in today. That's all we have is share texts on right. Facebook and tweets at 140 a, characters. A massive problem, but but yeah, it's a, but, it's, a but it's also a reality. It's, it's, also a reality. Rea- it's also reality. Yeah. The other thing that I would say, which I'd love for you to react to further to this, sometimes um, giving uh, examples by metaphor, not metaphor, by uh, analogy is a helpful way to actually make make the case. So here's my here's my analogy. To uh, this. I'm going to stop making your argument. OK, at okay. some point you start make start making your argument. But here's here's further to my argument, because uh-huh. I, I want you to respond to this. Imagine if rather than Google pages uh, and headlines, we were talking about an amusement park and rides. Okay. Okay. So I go to Disney because Disney has Space Mountain and Thunder Mountain and Splash Mountain and all these different uh, things. My going there is driven by the fact that those things are there, irrespective of whether or not I ride them. And in fact, there's been many times I've gone to those parks and have not ridden the Thunder Mountain or Splash Mountain or, or whatever. But if you were to tell me they're no longer there, that'd be one reason for me not to go. And so to me, yeah. the, the headlines yeah, yeah, yeah. are well, the rides. 
Yeah, I, like I, I get that. I mean, for Google, in order for it to be able to retain the value that it has with the audiences, is it needs to be able to deliver on what it's supposed to deliver, which is organize all the information, not some information, but all the information, right? And the moment that you have some of that information that is no longer there, it loses some value. Now, we can probably make a little bit of an argument in terms of right now, how much local news specifically add to that value chain or the reason people are going to Google. Um, but ultimately, it, it's still part of it. So I, I can sure. see it starting to chip away. The, to me, the issue that Google and Facebook are facing is not so much the problem with Australian local news. It, it's, it's, the, it's really the signal that it creates to your point about really reversing the model. Right. Um, and, and making it so that is the opposite situation. Right. Many, uh, many of these companies that operate like publishers, et cetera, have to have, you know, typically these roles called, you know, audience growth people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what audience growth people are trying to figure out is how do I get more people to stop, pay attention to my content and actually come here? And that could be through organic content. A lot of them very much paid content. So many publishing companies are spending a lot of money on Facebook and Google trying to get people's attention to come to you. So to your point, it is completely inversing. Uh, inversing that model, which is which is interesting, I I, I still kind of have a, have an issue with it though when I when I when I think about it in terms Why? of, I think the challenge that I have with this is that in many ways it feels like it feels like a a um, trying to solve for a broken model that is maybe frankly not as sustainable as it was in, a, in, a, in a, you know for a long time and what i mean by is like you're local saying the news, local media model the local yeah. media model right local media model has been struggling and it was in many ways you know broken up because of the rise of social platforms the rise of much more just digital offerings in general even pure digital companies you know versus versus the linear businesses you know most of these local businesses were primarily sustained through your point through advertising a lot of local advertising that's where a lot of like dealerships will go to and do all the, their, their deals the reality is if you were trying to sell a car having having to place advertising on a local newspaper is just no longer the most effective way to get people to buy your car the most effective way to get people to buy your car is to talk to people who are looking to buy cars and most of us don't go to my local radio station the moment i'm thinking about buying a car I may mm-hmm. so happen to listen to an auto commercial and be like, oh, that's right. I was already kind of thinking about buying a car. Maybe this is the time to, to, to do it. If I'm looking to buy a car, I'm going to go search for cars. I'm going to go yeah. to the places where you find cars. So that so really the, the most advertising value gets generated in the moment where you are able to have the right messaging to the right person at the right time where they have the right intent, right, mm-hmm. for purchase. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, we, and the, the, the challenge is that... W- is almost trying to figure out a way to solve for a problem on a on a business, and specifically here, lo, a lot of these local news organizations that have already been struggling for a very long time. That frankly, this may help, and it may help some, but I am very uh, skeptical of how much they could actually generate in terms of revenue from from traffic coming from Google and Facebook. Because we know two things: one is Google and Facebook can, can change their algorithm at any moment and be like, "Well, you know, they really want to." pay money or don't want to get more money from other people that I'm not having to pay. Yeah. Right? That's one. Or number two is like, how much do I really need that content for me to still have a very solid offering? So while they may be, be able to get some of this and the bigger threat for Google is not the local news organization is, is the fact that it opens up the door for all these other businesses, right? To do the same thing or try to do the same thing. It, it worries me that we're trying to put band-aids on a raft that has massive holes 
that has you know that is leaky You're water to, everywhere. Right, but but let me ask you a on question. A, mo- that, a model that's actually flawed. But do you think I agree that, that it's leaking and I agree that the raft has a hole and I agree that it's sinking, but some people would say it's because it crashed into a reef called Google and Facebook. In other words, what is causing it to take on water is the fact that these business models exist. And so they could say, yeah, I get it. My platform's on fire, but they're the ones who set the fire. And so I need to like solve it through their, through that platform in a way, because that's where my problem came from. They could I mean, say that. You, you, yeah, you could say that. It could also mean like, hey, by the way, we got out of the 1980s into the 90s, into the 2000s, where With people technology. are not looking at technology and people are not primarily consuming news through print. Right. And the rise of, of cable networks and the rise of digital platforms and the rise of all these different things that make it much less sustainable. The, the fact that national news is so accessible, that's also a big mm-hmm. problem that local news organizations have. It's like now my options are when I can watch, where, where I get my news from is no longer in four channels. Right, yeah, it's kind of across the board. Sure. It's all the time. So, all of these different things have basically undermined the business model in my mind for local news. Okay. By the way, part of the big reason why the the big national news had such a big problem, especially the the you know the, the publishers are having to really rethink their business. New York Times struggled for a very very long time, and now feels like it's come back stronger than ever in many ways because they had to figure out a way to do a subscription model, figure out a way to expand the type of news content, got into podcasts, got into all this original content they weren't doing before. Branded content too. A lot of branded content, mm-hmm. you know, reduced their reliance on, on print and some of the traditional advertising that they had historically. All of these different things, innovation had to change the way that these big publications had to figure out how to survive. And I think they're in a much better place for it. So I agree with I, that. I, I can I, see the art. Yeah. I, I can see, like, I'm literally can make your argument, and I can see why you would say that. That's why this is a tough issue. But I think it's it's one of those where I feel like there's just too many holes in that in that raft, and you're trying to solve for something that I, I still kind of struggle with. It, it really operating that way because I still think of <clears throat> I, I could see the argument much better for Facebook. For Facebook, I think they have a much better argument in my mind because Facebook, and many times, not only does it give you, I guess Google does to some extent as well, but Facebook really facilitates the whole idea of I don't want to consume the whole content. I just want a little snippet. Yeah. And that little snippet is really all I'm looking for. Right. And the fact that Facebook, because it's not search, is actually just feeding to to your like they're literally using it to keep you engaged. Like, oh hey, here's another little snippet that you may want to react to, respond to, yeah, get, in, get enraged there, with that without less- Big brothery with Facebook than it is with Google. Google was limiting what you can actually by the way, could be limiting. When you think what you're about Facebook, Facebook adding additional value in their platform of content that they don't own, actually, headline news will be a great example of the fact that they use that as a way to get people upset, react to it, comment on it, people commenting on the comments, all of which people haven't even read the actual damn content. <laughs> right. Right. So you have, but, right. but so for, forget the, so the, sure. the dynamic, but what it does is you've also unlocked a lot more value within your platform. On frankly, on content that you never had to pay for, the root cause of that conversation was probably some headline in some publication that most people that are engaging on it never even never read, ha- haven't read. Yeah, but yet all this additional time on the platform. Just, <clears> so <throat> I could absolutely see. So, so I mean, I guess the more I talk about it, the more I can see. I'm. I could definitely see being on the side of of these organizations. Say Facebook should have to pay for some of this content, at least maybe not for the whole thing, but some some value there. But Google's the one that I, I really do struggle more with Google. I see that's a different thing. And by the way, I, I, I completely agree with the fact that innovation, or sorry, technology can oftentimes create um, disruption that, that you know, requires innovation as a way to get out of it. And that that's a big thing that's happened here in the local media industry. Like, I completely agree with that. But what I think, though, is happening intentionally or not in this, in this 
legal proceeding, whatever it is, because they haven't actually made it into a law yet, but they're they're considering it. Right. Is is the fact that we've had to now we have to parse out where the value is for each of the constituents in this process. And mm-hmm. I had never done that before. The, it seemed very. I was thinking as an advertiser the whole time. It seems very clear. Look, your your link is going to be there, and if somebody clicks on it, you get paid. Like that's sure. not all of that makes sense to me. But the more I think about the ubiquity, the fact that this stuff is electricity, the fact that people are on it constantly, and the fact that one of the reasons that I as a consumer go to Google is the expectation that these things will be there, and those players are not getting any value for that part of it. I do think that parsing out. The kind of value chain and going, what's what's the value exchange at this point versus this point? Like we need to have that conversation. And in the right. in the past, it's been really clear. Like you're there, great. Somebody clicks on you, awesome. If not, like I'm not going to give you anything. Yeah, you know what I mean. Now, as a potential solution, just a thought, I throw it out there. What if they were to say Google, not Facebook? What if Google were to say, we'll pay you a premium on your CPM or something if you're page one result. In other words. If you're the most popular thing and you just happen to be number one, we'll give you more money to the extent that somebody clicks on you as a way to kind of subsidize, yeah. give more value and in, in incentivize. Sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's one way to do it. And uh, I'm assuming that will be the case in any way when we're talking about like paying people through through click through, because if you're a you know page one result versus page 15, it has to matter yeah. in terms of how much you should be getting. So I think that it, that is one. Um, once again, I, I do think though that the Facebook argument to me is a much, much stronger one because Facebook really is benefiting from headlines and headlines to not just in terms of what content is available, but the fact that there's actual additional is generating engagement within the platform specifically because of the headlines without ever giving any attribution back to the original content uh, in terms of monetization, right? You can say that the more engaging my content is, uh, even my headline is within Facebook, the more people will engage on my page right. and then I will but eventually not, make money off of that. But it is not the same thing. It's right? not, but your comparison kind of falls apart when you, Facebook versus Google, you're right. Facebook versus Google News, you're not right. Google News is a product. Google News is a way that people get information. And that is very much the same thing. Headline, little subtext. I can read basically what's happening without ever clicking on it. I'm doing yeah. it right now. I'm looking at McConnell retracts filibuster demand, paving way for power sharing agreement with Schumer. That's Fox News. CNN, McConnell allows Senate yeah. power sharing. Like, I don't ever have to click on any of this stuff. And I'm getting tons of value yeah. as a consumer. Yeah, that's yeah. all I'm saying. And, and, maybe, and maybe that's the, the right solve for then. In products where they're directly benefiting from the aggregation of this content, where it doesn't even require having to go to the source content. And that's what kind of the distinction that I'm making here, right? That I think if there's value being generated in the social platform, in the search platform, where even a portion of that a headline, a share text, is generating value without that doesn't require much or click through to the source content, then maybe that is a place to focus on uh, and actually be able to have some compensation for these companies that are, frankly, adding to the overall, overall value proposition of both Google and Facebook. I think to me that we that seems like a much more equitable way to to think about it to deal with it rather than I'm taking my toy and going home, which is basically what they've said. But right? but it, but by the way, that is the reality though too. I mean, that's the thing that when you are dealing with Google and Facebook is that they don't need Australian local news. They just don't. They they don't. But the them leaving Australia 
is a big move. Yeah, that's. And, I, I and, think that's just a bluff in my mind. Well, it is, but it's almost like I wish they'd play it out because I'd like to see what happens, um, you know, in a country that doesn't have access to Google, just so I could, we can understand and have that use case. There was actually a link in um, one of the articles that we were doing for research for this particular piece that. And I didn't read the whole thing it linked to, but it linked to a guy who did a social experiment of like not doing Google products for 90 days or something like that. So he was like, basically got his results from right. Duck, Duck Go or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of other ones. Yeah, A couple yeah. of those things. And, and you know, the net net was, it was pretty easy, but it's a pain in the butt when you're like run integrated things like Google Mail sure, and all that sure. stuff, which of course is a strategy for Google, right? Of course. Um, but, you know, but I think that that's... Um, them leaving or Australia calling their bluff would actually be really interesting. They should call their bluff. I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that actually would be the best move for Australia because look, Google's already showing, they're already testing, removing news from his, from his, from his news feed. Right. See what happens. Right. right. Um, and I think on that, it's interesting because I'm sure they're testing right now. AB testing like, oh, let's see how much you actually drop in traffic, drop in monetization, all of that. Right. But if Google says that we're going to get out of the country, Australia should call them on that. Because I think that to me, whenever I hear anything like that, I think it's just the dumbest thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bad threat. I think of what happened here in California with uh, the ride share services, with Uber, with Lyft, saying, oh, yeah. we're going to leave the state. Great. Goodbye. <laughs> right. You know why? Because there's a bunch of other companies that mm-hmm. are sitting there right there waiting for market share. They're willing to do it at a loss. Companies already have the technology and for infrastructure, many of them that are based globally. Right, some in Latin America, they'll be like, "We would love to have California market share, even if we have to buy for buy it all at a complete loss, get bigger, and then just get acquired by somebody else." Right. So whenever I heard like, "Oh, Uber and Lyft are leaving California," awesome, goodbye. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna really want to leave the the biggest state it's in like the country, the seventh economy really? in the world. Like really, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna let other, another, one of your competitors like actually grow to maybe your size mm-hmm. because of that move. Great. Yeah, they're not. I mean, look, not. I, I don't this know. Is, mm-hmm. It's a bad threat. So I think in this, if if I think the most leverage here that, that the that the country has is actually calling out that bluff of them leaving the country because someone else will, 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 will take it over. And if that's a signal for other countries, like okay. You're not willing to play ball with us? We're going to find someone else that, that will play it ball with us. It would be a super incre- interesting social experiment, too, sure. because even though I think consumers could respond by going to other services, and to your point, other things would fill in the gaps, there would be a near-term impact to the same local economy that they're of trying course. to protect, right? Of course, it's there, like, there hey, would be. I, I, now I don't know where to get my car, my haircut, where to go. Like Now I'm like, whatever, I'm going to go to my same three places rather than be introduced to another one. It'd be really interesting, but, like but, very near-term. But imagine the opportunity. To the same local people that are complaining. Agree, but imagine the opportunity for those other massive search uh, competitors saying, mm-hmm. "Like, wait, we get Australia for ourselves without the Google return being of there." Ask the return of Ask Jeeves, great, <laughs> right? Like, great. Remember Ask Jeeves? Uh, of course. Like, I used to always. I, I think I've told you this story plenty of times, but you know, one of the ways that I always kind of gauge people's age is I always say that one of my biggest clients when I first started working at Accenture, which was my first job out of college, was Netscape. And people gave me that blank stare. They know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell is Netscape? Mm-hmm. And it was, by the way, for those of you, that it actually was one of the, maybe not sort of the first, but one of the largest search engines for a long time before Internet Explorer uh, took it over because of, it was basically built into all Microsoft products. But it's like, it's like that's the kind of situation. And some of these big boys can definitely go away. You know, Google is so massive that, you know, we think actually it would take a lot to have that happen. But I, I like the move of them throwing it. I'm like, great, goodbye. I thought you were going to say. We'll take it. The other older one, the Netscape, is Excite at home. Oh, Excite. I forgot about that right, one. Even that one, I don't like. That one's like, uh, so, you know, look, on, this, on this topic, I guess to wrap it up, there, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that is going on. Um, you know, I, I, I frankly came in with a very sort of strong position to be complete, completely against it. But even the more we talked about it, I could definitely see 
the the argument of where there is value being generated, of course, by these news organizations that is not being paid for, uh, and that Facebook and and Google are, are benefiting from, and you know maybe there's there's some adjustment that needs to, needs to be had. But what happens here in this small, relatively speaking, globally small global market, I think could have a lot of effects across the globe about how these companies operate. Um, and I'm sure they're going to fight, you know, tooth and nail to try to stop that because it's not just local news. But if you start spreading across all types of other types of, of content organization, of then it becomes a really, a really the moment that they accept it for local news, they're going to get sued by every other category or something, yeah, something exactly. like that will happen. And other, other countries. Yep. And that becomes <clears throat> massive. And the, the last point that I'll make on this before we move on to Courage or Cringe is that um, quietly, I guess, relative to this Australia thing, they've done a deal in France. Yeah, I saw that. The kind I, of news. I didn't read that one too much through what happened. It's not identical, but it's but it's similarly precedential, right? Where you can look at it and say this is precedent for whatever. So obviously there'll be more on this to come, but um, but uh, I just don't think the argument it's going to cost us money is going to work for Google. So uh, you're not considering our cost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but we're uh, not. It's actually that is no, our case. No one cares. No one cares. Literally next to no one. <laughs> All right, that's our deep dive then for this week. Let's move on to Courage or Cringe. We've got Bill Maher, we've got Megyn Kelly, we've got the New York Times. Very colorful cast. Um, where do we start on this one? Bill Maher, and by the way, I really need to just misspell the last name so I won't say it incorrectly. You, I have, just, to, you it, have to spell it wrong to say it right. Right, it just, for, Mayor, no, Bill Maher, Maher. Uh, by the way, the headline in this article that we saw for the Daily Beast, love it. Brutal, right? brutal. Bill Maher, down. who said the N word on TV, argues that racism is in America is exaggerated. So that was the headline, right? Mm-hmm. So it was an article that was put out by the Daily Beast mm-hmm. uh, that already talked about a, a recent episode of Bill Maher, real time with Bill Maher, which is in his show, right? So during the panel segment, uh, there was a discussion around uh, around race. Now Maher said, and I quote: "So am I wrong to not want to see race all the time?" Because that's how I was brought up. Like, that's what a good liberal does, is you don't see race. And now they switched it all around, and I'm bad because I don't see it all the time. Is ubiquity even effective to make people aware of this issue at every turn? Now, that actually led to one of his guests, which is a podcast co-host, Camille Foster, to say, in, in quotes, that he actually agreed with, with Donald Trump in arguing that, and I quote, diversity and inclusion training can often increase people's racial insensitivity and can, it can make workplace even less harmonious. Right. So Mar continued. And I quote, I'm so empathetic to the cause, but don't gaslight me, you know. Um, and this is what I hear privately from my black friends. And this is like one of those moments where you either stop no matter. That's when you reel it back. Whatever comes next. You're what gonna, I hear from my lose. black friends. You're, you're going to lose. It's not going to work. It's like. Stop right there, right? Like someone should just like hit the little yeah. red button. Like, nope, no, nope. pause, time out. used to have that on radio, the dump button. We're going to redo that, yeah. <laughs> that statement, yeah. bring it back. Yeah. But he said, you know, after, after <laughs> what his black friends are saying, he's, uh, and I quote, I don't want to be the focal point. I just want to blend in. I want to have a beer like you. Don't look at me like I have to make a speech about it or you have to make a speech about <clears> it. <throat> Right now, um, and that's what he said. Right now, that's what he said. His black friends are saying that they don't, that they saying, don't necessarily right? want to be on, in the spotlight for being every, black all day. every single time. Right, right. Mm-hmm. now, part of what makes this, I think, also a little bit more heavier, or there's a lot more sort of focus on what Mar says, is that he's had some past controversies. Right, so mm-hmm. one, he definitely dropped the N word on his program on on, on, a, on an episode, and actually, he's one that I went and I, and I read it when in, or I actually heard it when he when he said it. And he was being a little self-deprecating when he said it, but nevertheless, he did say it and actually came back and apologized. He's also had, you know, which is described as regular, regularly trading in his Islamophobia 
Um, by the way, this is part of a broader issue because he, you know, Bill Maher is someone that is um, very anti-religious, right? So he's always taking a stance, and he kind of goes after everybody really hard. And by the way, that's a really interesting way to describe him because he he would be in the category of anti-religion. He's not an atheist or an agnostic. He's against religion. Yeah, he's he, done documentaries he, specifically he's, ridiculing right. religion and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's atheist, but he's anti-religious. No, no, that's what I'm saying. I know right. he's atheist, but I'm just but saying yeah, yeah, he, he falls into a different category. He is, because he yeah. goes hard yeah. after like yeah. a lot of religions and, and mm-hmm. obviously um, in any mm-hmm. case. He also you know, had said in another episode to uh, Black Republican Representative Will Hurd if he had collected CIA intelligence by the Popeye's chicken, and, you know, and he also made a bunch of different com- comments around China over the novel coronavirus. So, and by the way, that comment on Popeye's, when was that, when was that made? Cause it depends. Popeye's was an obscure kind of brand up until a few years ago. No, it wasn't. Now it's, yes, it was. It was, it was very much a Southern kind of thing. If, if you, no. When Burger King acquired it, they pumped a ton of money into that brand and they did that chicken sandwich <laughs> and it broke through and now it's everywhere. Well, so, so was I the, think, I think Popeye's became cool with the hipster. But Popeyes have been around. In, I didn't say I hadn't been around. In I'm the, just saying, like that, in the more urban neighborhoods, like for a long, long, long time. I, I get it. So what I'm saying is, this is his comment, and this is not what the Courage of Cringe is about. But was yeah. his comment about Popeyes in reference to the fact that they're ubiquitous, that they're everywhere? And so you're like, like saying Starbucks? No. Okay. It's, it's all right. No. So it's, the, it, he, he, yeah, he was calling back to the to the old Popeyes. In which case, it was it, probably he was calling it to any Popeyes, and and it's the Popeyes may, may be cool with the cool kids now, but it's still any reference to chicken watermelon are going to have the same kind of racial connotations and that's what it was so look he definitely speaks his mind he's a comedian he is definitely on the edge a lot of times and i said a number of things in the past that i think has rubbed people uh the wrong way across both sides uh, conservative and, and liberal so charlie uh on this one <laughs> Well, here's why, here, why don't you go first? Here's the thing. I mean, I, I you know, there's certain things. I guess disagree. What what are we what are we cringing or cringing on this one? I think we're, we're his comments. I mean, his the, comments specifically, right? His comments. I mean, I don't think that the um, Daily Beast headline is exactly accurate with respect to what he it's, said. It's not at all accurate to it's what like, he said. Let's, let's he, he argues racism is exaggerated. I don't think he didn't say any of he that. He never said that. Yeah. So what what he said is is it? He actually asked a question. Is it wrong for me not to want to see race? Everywhere. All the and time. He, yeah. Right. Look, there's a lot of things that, that he actually says, but I think here's the core issue, at least that I'm going to try to key in on. He's trying to juxtapose the way that he was brought up as a liberal with what today it seems people perceive as the liberal, liberal position. And he's saying where I come from or the way that I was raised, the idea of not seeing race was a good thing. And now it seems that the idea of only seeing race. Now, when you when you deal in trade and absolutes, you're gonna you're right. you know it's I know it's good for comedy. That is part of comedy is being a generalist, but it's not going to work for dialogue, right? So I don't think he means either one. I don't think in the '70s or '60s everyone was just colorblind, nor do I think that today in the 2020s everyone is race exclusive, right? Um, but He's making a point that actually, to my mind, is a pretty legitimate point. And what I would draw from from that is, or what I would base that on, is what we just celebrated very recently on the 18th, Martin Luther King, right? So Martin Luther mm-hmm. King, um, you know, he is very fam- famously known for a lot of things, but one of them was the fact that he, um, you know, preached this idea of being regarded for the content of his character, not the color of his skin. So that idea of like, maybe it's not colorblind, but let's not start with that. Look at me for who I am right now. Of course, MLK Mm. was driven by a Christian ethic 
And in that Christian ethic, it says, first and foremost, we have dignity, we're children of God, and then we can talk about whether or not we're a particular color or barber or a stockbroker or whatever the heck we are. But first and foremost, we're brothers and sisters. And so his perspective was, let's start with that. And in that regard, I have to agree with Mar. I do think that Mm -hmm. we've come from a world that was more about like the position should be that we're all equal and then we deal with differences. And now it seems like the position is what group do you first belong to? And then we can talk about the other things that you're, that you are. So I, you know, I agree with him, um, you know, on that. And, you know, it's also, I also agree with what you said, which is the whole reference to the black friend is an instant non zero percentage thing. You're always going to get called out when you do that, unless you name that person. You know, I was talking to whoever, you know, right. Sam, Bill, whoever like, it was. Racist, I have black friends. <laughs> well, but the moment you say that and you don't identify the person, right. like you and I would say like, yeah, I was talking to my cousin Jules, right? Or I was talking to my, right. my, my, my wife, Jessica, or whatever it may be. And it happens that that person is that. But when you say any of my black friends, like they, call, like they come in a category at the store or something, like, right, you know right, what right. I mean? It's, it's definitely a bad move. And I think a lot of people are responding to that perhaps more than what he actually Probably, did say. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, again, toss up for me. But in terms of the comments that he actually made, what he actually said, um, even though there was kind of good and bad, I'm going to I'm going to come down on courage on this one, because I think fundamentally he was definitely speaking a position that has a great deal of truth. Yes, it's probably unpopular, but it's based largely in fact, even though he's giving his own kind of opinion about the matter. So for me, I come down on courage on this one. Yeah. So I'm going to agree with you. I'm on courage on this one as well. Um, and I think because when I look at this argument and, and you, you sort of bring it down to the core of what he was saying and the core being that he doesn't want to see race all the time. If, is he wrong to think that? I have to agree with him. Like, listen, as much as I strongly believe there is a lot of racism, not just in this country, but across the globe, and there's a lot of race issues that we have to you know deal through. I also don't think it's beneficial to try to look at every single thing through a lens of racism every single time. And I think that's a really important thing for us to also recognize, right? And and so from that standpoint, I, I agree with what he's saying. I agree that it's it's actually you can't you know think of the world that way. When you're at the second part about the black friends, it's like no matter how you phrase it, it's it's just not gonna be well. And while he has a lot of controversies and in places where he, I, I don't agree with him and um, uh, in some places where he, he comes off as even coming off as being racist, and and frankly, just because he's liberal doesn't mean that he can't be racist. He could definitely be racist and of be liberal. Of course. And there's examples. I think that Popeye's chicken example is an example where he was being a little racist. He was mm-hmm. trying to be funny, and he's a comedian. Not all, they're not all gonna land. Um, so I don't agree with some of the things that he said there, but that position that he doesn't want to, you know, that he, 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 it's, he doesn't want to necessarily see everything always through a lens of race all the time. I have to agree with him. I think he's right in saying that. Yeah. And by the way, I agree with probably 1% of what Bill Maher talks about. And I consider him, I don't know that there's a good term, so maybe we should make one up, like a religiophobe. Okay. I I think he's somebody who is antagonistic in a nasty way to people of faith um, and religion, of course, you know, of of which I would put myself in that category. So he's not a friend to me, but I just have to call it like I see it. Yep. Um, So, uh, so I think we're, we're, uh, we're good to go on that one for one on courage. Very good. Um, So let's get into our second topic. Um, Megan Kelly, uh, former Fox News host, um, was being interviewed by BBC Newsnight. And she said, uh, and I quote, they hated, she was talking about, by the way, President Trump when she said this. They hated him so much, they checked their objectivity, and it wasn't just CNN. All of them did. 
they just checked their own personal feelings about him. So she was obviously speaking about the way journalists uh, covered uh, President Trump. And it was as part of a broader subject of the role that media played in actually um, in creating this the situation that led to the, the Capitol assault, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, she also continued to say uh, that too many journalists follow the, and I quote, Jorge Ramos theory of covering Trump. Uh, by describing Trump and his behavior as racist, sexist, and misogynistic. Now, for those of you that may not know, Jorge Ramos has been a news anchor for Univision for decades. Um, he also was very famously thrown out of um, of an event by uh, Donald Trump, uh, of which he basically was asking questions at a turn, and and Donald Trump did not appreciate it, and ended up getting security to to escort him out of, out of the <laughs> out of out of the the room. So there is no love lost there, um, and that's who Megyn Kelly is referring to. Um, now she continued as she, as she was talking about Jorge Ramos. Uh, Megyn Kelly said, and I quote: "He advocated prior to Trump's election that we needed to cover him differently, that you needed to outwardly call him a racist, sexist, misogynistic, all of it, and that that was important for history. And I think too many journalists agreed with that with with that at their own peril." Part of the reason that we saw what happened on the Capitol here two weeks ago was because there's been a complete lack of trust, destruction of trust in the media, and people don't know where to turn for true information. They don't trust the media anymore, and that's a major problem. And, of course, that, you know, people had a lot of issue with, with, what, with, with what she said, but I'll, I'll stop there. I mean, obviously, a big part here is to the degree that Megyn Kelly feels that media in general played uh, a key role in, uh, in that dynamic that happened to, um, you know, that created the, the attack on Capitol Hill. Um, I'd love for you to go go first before I comment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I go first. To me, it's a total cringe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a total cringe. And look, I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been hearing a lot of a lot of conversation, uh, especially as it relates to the fallout of what happened at Capitol Hill. So I think a lot of people are trying to figure out the why it happened, how it happened, all of it. Right. Um, I've heard this as one of the possible explanations of of course that it was the media sort of created this this dynamic. When I hear those, it bothers me because I think it, it completely tries to dissolve or to remove the burden of the issue that, frankly, I place maybe not 100 percent, but a good 80 percent on, on President Trump and what he created and seeding this doubt around the election that started not not just uh, two months ago, but it started in the summer. You know, before that, when, when he started talking about, frankly, when, when, when he was talking about uh, uh, when he talked about um getting new Supreme Court nominees because he, even from the summer, was already talking about that that was going to be, you know, a place where they were going to have to battle it out for the election. So he was already creating doubt from the summer through the election, spending the last, uh, you know, post-election, last two months, seeding doubt across all levels, local, state, you know, federal with the Supreme Court. All of these issues that basically create the dynamic that people, you know, felt that they were being robbed. Also, a lot of this trust in the news or in news organizations, I think, frankly, came from the way that President Trump handled himself and how he was constantly calling people fake news. And to me, to hear Megyn Kelly talk about this, as a matter of fact, I saw and I I wrote here one of the comments from David Frum, who I think I think he's a reporter uh, made for The Atlantic. And what he said, and he and I quote him saying, he said, Megyn Kelly lost her Fox News TV show. And was forced to hire security detail to protect her children after she asked Donald Trump one tough question at a presidential debate. She better than anybody should know that objective coverage of Trump would, of course, be very negative. And that's where I find really interesting of Megan, of her saying this. Megan Kelly, who basically on one question, the question about that they're, that they're referring to is that she basically in the first presidential debate when when pre, wasn't he was just a nominee at that point um, as part of the um, what's it called? 
the 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 primary the primaries I'm yeah. sorry yeah yeah uh, Megyn Kelly asked him specifically, uh, President Trump, or you know, at that, at that point, nominee Trump, you've, you've called women, you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? And the amount of fallout that happened from that one question, all of a sudden, Trump was talking about her that she's not very good. At one point, she, he even said that she was bleeding from her eyes in other places, like literally referencing that she was menstruating, like... There was all of this going after her because she was from Fox News, who was supposed to be on her side, supposed to treat him well. So there is this immediate, like, really sort of harsh dynamic between President Trump and the and news organizations using this whole, you know, not just lying, but also constantly calling people as, 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 as fake news. So not to put it back on news organizations being the, the problem here, I, I think it takes away the responsibility that in the in the dynamic that President Trump actually created. So for that reason, I find it super cringe, and especially coming from her whose own career was deeply impacted by simply asking a very legitimate question of, of, of candidate Trump at that, at that point who had <clears> made <throat> those comments, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I don't, I don't buy this at all. Okay. Did you, by the way, did you, um, cause I didn't, but did you listen to the whole, uh, interview? Uh, her whole, no, I did not listen okay. to the whole interview. No. All right. So we're both operating from the same thing because I may be missing a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it, so you are cringe on her blaming the yes. Capitol riot partly on U.S. media. Okay, uh, correct. All right, very good. Well, it's, mm-hmm. well, it's, and especially the, she, she says the reason that she feels that the that the media had uh, checked her objectivity. Yep. Yeah, checked her objectivity, and, and because of that, uh, create a complete lack of trust in, in this, this is basically on on information or where people can get true information from. Got it. Okay. Um, so we diverge on this one. Um, I came down in the area of courage and I'll, I'll tell you a few reasons why. So, um, and, and we'll put David Frum's quote aside for a second, because I think we should discuss that as well. It's, I, I, I find it under, I understand what he said, but I also find it really troubling in what he said, because I think it's part of the problem. And the, the, the second thing is that there's a lot of relationship between this Megyn Kelly thing. And the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the New York times thing. Mm-hmm. I think they're interrelated. I think first of all, Megyn Kelly has been a journalist for a long time. So she speaks as an insider and someone should, who, in my opinion, should be given the benefit of the doubt with respect to her analysis about her own industry. In the same way that I would say somebody who has our background talking about Google and Facebook, like we just spent half an hour doing, maybe has a more credible perspective than somebody, even though they're, they may be great people, who spent their career in some other kind of industry, right? So we've sure. got that sort of insider track, and I think that we should afford her a little bit more credibility on the basis of that. The other thing which directly relates to what we're about to talk about for New York Times is that I do believe that um, two things can be right at the same, uh, true at the same time. Number one is that President Trump, being the leader of the country at that time, leader of the free world, bears a special and most primary responsibility for what happened in with the Capitol, right? Because of what he said and because of what he didn't say. I think both. I think that can be true. And at the same time, Megyn Kelly saying that the media is partly responsible for this because of their lack of, um, you know, kind of credibility and they're sort of checking their objectivity at the door can also be true. I do think that the, the media is becoming the story. I think that they've become the story in a lot of ways. And I don't think that that's a good thing. We know we just had um, not it's not one of our subjects, but we just had uh, uh I'm going to blow his name again, but uh, Senator Rand Paul, thank you. Mm. Senator Rand Paul just got into it with George Stephanopoulos on ABC about this exact dynamic. Like at some point, you even forget what they're arguing about, but it's Senator Rand Paul saying, why are you the story? Why am I talking to you like this is about you? Like you're supposed to be a journalist. It's almost like they stop arguing and all he's saying is, 
you're the story and that's part of the problem. And I do agree that I have seen that with certain journalists who are supposed to be not, you know, non talking heads. Um, and, and, and on top of that, so I do think that we can, just like I said about Trump, we can say that the media that Trump put out and Twitter and all these guys um, amplifying it had a, a, an effect to incite violence and cause physical harm. So, so too can the media by their lack of, you know, of, uh, of whatever, you know, taking sides or credibility also lead to physical things. Right. And so I think that they are partly responsible and that's not to take away primary responsibility from somebody else. So, and, and I think that somebody who's been in journalism for decades is probably the person who we would listen to it from. So for me, it's courage on the basis of that. Um, and you know, like I said, I haven't talked about the David Frum quote, but I think that one's interesting too. Yeah, I think the the, the reason why I'm I'm so cringe on this one is that when I hear that the 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 approach that many journalists are, were you know were, were trying to take in terms of describing Trump and his behavior as racist, sexist, and misogynistic, is that when his behavior was racist, sexist, and misogynistic, then it should be covered that way. Of course. And I think that's... Of course. But the, but the second it was covered that way is like <clears throat> President Trump was always the very first one to say, oh, you're not being fair to me, not treating me well. He's always the victim of everything, but yet you're the one saying these sure. things. You know, it was pretty interesting. I forgot what I was listening to the other day. And they were talking about news organizations. Actually, they were talking about actually Fox News. Um, and one of the things that was interesting is that trying to unpack and understand how Fox News will be able to sort of regain, regained its lead because it actually lost quite a bit since the election to see places like CNN. Mm-hmm. And frankly, they talked a lot about the dynamic of how Fox News grew under the presidency of Donald Trump. And, it's, and it, led, it was all the way before he even announced to be candidate. He was constantly calling into the morning shows, constantly you know, get, getting on air while he was, while he was you know, running, running to, be, to, be, to be a candidate and even when, when he became president. So there was always this very tight relationship between that organization and President Trump and saw it as his own sort of additional outlet, right? But the thing that, that was interesting that they talked about, which I find it kind of hilarious, is like, you know, the part where news organizations kind of let themselves fall astray is that so much of what was talked about was literally coming in every morning and seeing what did President Trump tweet at three o'clock in the morning and then using that to dictate whatever they're going to talk about that day. So you're right. Is Can some blame be put on those organizations for letting themselves be too dictated by what President Trump was doing or not doing and reacting to every random tweet? Many times, really trying to decipher what the hell he was talking about. Because playing those examples where he was saying, like, right. what does what? that mean? Is that yeah. new policy? Is that like, what is he Nobody actually talking knew. about? Yeah. No one understood that, right? Mm-hmm. But when I, and, and you're right, so you could put some blame on the organizations for reacting to him, but it still starts with him. Mm-hmm. I, I saw, you know, I was, I was showing you earlier, you know, my, my cousin's but, but, cousin but, but, on, the, mm-hmm. on the memes, like, he's really good at memes. And he put one out, he's like, hey, did you guys catch that, you know, 3 a.m. tweet from the president? You know, last night, and it was like, yeah, me neither. Like, have a good day. And it was one of those things like, yeah, you're right. We're not, we're not waking up. Just like, what the hell did he say last night? And everyone's trying to react. Literally, the country trying to figure out, in case there were like new policies were put out, that they were finding out through tweets, mm-hmm. and no one that worked underneath them knew what, what, how to even you know, uh, be, be able to support it. I mean, I think that's all the <clears> issues that, frankly, this one person in a very uh, powerful position created that dynamic. Yeah, so other, I'm not I'm not taking away the responsibility from the news organization, but I just think it's to me it's but, really but, unfair but, but, to put it like oh you didn't you know you but were. I, it sounds like you're making a case though that any other factors to be considered somehow diminish the fact of who the primary fault is just by considering other factors. Like because in other words, we should we not talk about any other factors? I, if I, I think we're talking about 
uh, symptoms versus the, versus the actual disease. I mm-hmm. think President Trump was a disease. Mm-hmm. And the symptoms here was, was some of the coverage and the way that some of these news organizations uh, literally acted over the last four years. To me, is a direct result of the actual disease. I think it's President Trump. Yeah, and that's we definitely see it differently. I think yep. it takes two to tango, um, for sure. And one can be the aggressor, and one can be the defender. And in other cases, maybe it's inverted. The other thing that's also true is in what Megyn Kelly said. Then we'll move on. Is the credibility of of media has dropped precipitously over the last five years. I'm looking at a morning consult Hollywood Reporter study right now, and just to give you the high level, it's basically 51% in 2020 of all adults consider any uh, news outlets, and I'm talking about the majors, right? ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, all of them. When you aggregate it all, 51% found any of those news outlets credible. That's a something like 25% drop from 2016, 15, yeah, But right? Charlie, when you spent four years the president is calling everything fake news, what do you think is going to happen? Well, By the way, it's the same reason that 70% of Republicans don't believe that the elections that, were, were, were legitimate, which is half of the country. And that's, that's exactly where I was going to go. If that's, but if that's the truth, then why wouldn't this be reflected in... Why would it only be reflected, or wouldn't it only be reflected in one political party? The the stats I just gave you is true among Democrats and Republicans. Right, fifty so percent. Right. So what I'm telling you on the if you look at just a, if you if you put that instead of Republicans, that's going to be like eighty, eighty five percent, maybe it's higher 40%, than that. Forty percent for Republicans find it credible. Sixty five percent of Democrats. Fifty one percent of all adults. Right. Independents so, included. Yeah. To, to <clears> me, <throat> it is a reflection of what. Uh, when you spend four years as a president, basically attacking all news organizations, they call them all fake news, it's going to have an effect on how people, will, you know, what people believe. And the same reason that when we, when, when they, I was still floored at the fact that it was so high that it was like over seventy percent of Republicans didn't believe that the election was actually legitimate. Yeah. And, and why would you when the president of, of, of the country continues to tell you way after the fact, way after every court has rejected every single push? And still consider to say, and I definitely agree that it was a huge contributor. I just don't think it's the only one because it gives no credit to people that actually have brains in their heads, and I just refuse to believe that. Like, not everyone believes everything that's one person. I don't care who it is says. And by saying that he's the sole cause of it, and that the media had no responsibility to play for how they covered things. I mean, the things that I've seen, you, you know, it's just to me. I think, and frankly, the the Jorge Ramos comment is a perfect example of this, and even the. David from one. The fact that Megyn Kelly should know, should have known that objective coverage of Trump would be very negative for her, it basically says, uh, you know, we have to now become activists. And I fundamentally disagree with that. If the guy is a racist and a, and a misogynist, call him out on that and let people see that. But don't try to take this activist role and consider yourself a journalist. I think that has also happened, and that's been a major contributor to the lack of credibility that the media now has, is I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting a news story. I, I just don't know, right? That's, I think, also happening at the same time as what you said. Yeah, I just think that when you are doing these things and people report on the things you're doing and the things you're doing are negative, then the outcome is going to be negative, right? When people say he's racist, he made racist comments plenty of times. When people see him being sexist, the fact that you rank your opponents of how hot they are or how hot they, their wives are, right. 
Those are sexist comments. They, like, they are. Now, and my they point should is, be covered that you way. You should. You should cover them that way, but that's not what these people but, are saying. But the, yes, but, the, but the point, the moment that, no, but I, I that's think not it what is. Jorge Ramos is saying. Moment, He's not saying cover the man for what he does. He's saying have that be the lens by which everything we say about him is. That is not a journalistic position. That's saying that like, okay, he j- introduces a new tax bill. I'm going to start off the story by telling you that he made a sexist comment. Like, tell me about the sexist comment. And then also tell me about the tax bill he just signed. Let me make the decision. Don't make the decision for me. At least to call yourself a journalist. Right. Well, yeah, and I think this is where we just disagree in terms of what Jorge oh, is saying or, or not saying. Uh, because I see it much more as column for what he is and when he does it. And that the challenge that I thought that I always saw in the case of President Trump is the second anyone said anything negative about it, it just became fake news. Well, for sure, yeah, and, and, and that, and no that one's constant that. fake news, fake news, fake news leads to people being less. Where everything that comes out of those publications is seen as fake, regardless of of whether or not it's it's associated with something that he did or, or didn't do. Gotcha. Okay, we got to move on. Let's uh, let's move on to a related story so with the New York related, Times. Related. Uh, so the New York Times editor uh, apparently lost her job after she tweeted about having chills about Biden inauguration. Right. So New York Times editor Lauren Wolf. Uh, tweet about having the chills, uh, seeing positive chills, positive right? chills in this not case. like flu, flu-like symptoms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're you may need to get tested, checked out, right? Aches and chills. Seeing Biden arrive at Joint Base Andrews uh, on the eve of inauguration, right? Now, this of course, in and this is based on a tweet. And, and the moment she put this out, many conservatives, of course, criticized her post as for appearing to show political bias. Uh, now, Wolf ha- had also tweeted that the Trump administration had been childish in not giving Biden a military plane to fly to Washington, D.C. It was, of course, later pointed out that it was actually, you know, she deleted tweets after after it was pointed out that Biden has actually chosen to fly private. Right. So and that was what the 20th and by the 21st, she had been fired by the Times. Right. Now, apparently it's come out since that, that uh, she had been previously received a warning from the Times over her borderline political tweets. And had been told that she needed to stop doing that, right? Now, according to the New York Times, uh, they put out a statement that said, there are a lot of inaccurate information circulating on, circulating on Twitter. For privacy reasons, we don't get into the details of personnel matters, but we can say that we didn't end someone's employment over a single tweet. We don't plan to comment further, right? Also, according to the Times social media guidelines for newsroom employees, it asked that all journalists, I quote, not express partisan opinions, mm. promote political views, or endorse candidates, make offensive comments or do anything else that undercuts the Times journalistic reputation. Now, part and of the, on their personal stuff, on their personal handles. Well, yeah, Is because that, they all, they all use their personal handles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm just saying, but like maybe some of them, I, I just, I, I want to know like it, it, those guidelines apply to their person, like on Facebook, on Twitter. Yeah, well, I think they all apply to their, to whatever handles they use is just in terms of how they express themselves politically because, or, mm. or, or publicly because in most of these cases, they are using their personal handles, yeah. right? I mean, I, I don't think, I haven't seen actually any scenarios where, where, where journalists are, are being assigned, like here's your New York, New York Times Twitter account that only you use when you work for, for New York Times and then your personal, you could do your own. I mean, that was never, never been the case. Yeah. Now, part of the reason why the Times <clears throat> is also getting heat is for what many see as is a firing for a minor infraction, especially when the Times has kept other reporters who committed or at least were accused of major offenses like sexual misconduct allegations. And another reporter who, who was, um, I guess, caught of using a source that made false statements about terrorism, both of which I think one was let go, but then he'd been hired back. The other one was sort of suspended, but then, but then kept on board. So, look, I think on one hand, it's, it's um, when you see here, obviously it doesn't feel like it's a single tweet. 
But if you read between the lines, it seems like it's a pattern of a person that was maybe was being pushed um, to stop doing that. And they do have a, you know, what, what at least feels like a clear, at least to me, a clear guideline, social media guidelines of what they believe uh, these journalists should be, how they should be expressing themselves in terms of what they are able to hmm. share publicly or not. So I went, hmm. I went first last time, I, th- I think. Um, what do you think? Yeah, it's so, uh, it, I'm literally changing my mind in real time right now because I, my initial, let me talk this through. Maybe I All haven't right. changed my mind. My initial thought was this was cringe. Um, on the on the part of the New York Times firing this woman for her comment. And my thought was, in the absence of a very articulated policy around what you should do with your social media feeds, you have to allow people to have their own personal opinions, right? You know, there are judges that sit on the bench and may have voted for a particular candidate, but they're supposed to hear cases objectively and we have to give them the, the benefit of that of that um, doubt. But, but candidly, just my poor research, I guess, on this particular story, but I hadn't actually looked at the ethical guidelines that um, the New York Times has published. And I presume, because I don't know anymore, is that everybody has to like sign these to work yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. unless it was sprung on this woman, then it seems that they're basically saying, look, you have to abide by this stuff. Now we can debate whether or not the issue of, um, okay, this was a small thing. She only did it once. Other people have done it 10 times. How come you haven't taken action on them? Right. And get into this whole like, you know, kind of situation where the social platforms are dealing with where like some people are banned, other people aren't, and everybody's got a point of view. But the fact that there actually seems to be a codified set of rules that Mm -hmm. say you can or cannot do this, and she did, and she was fired for it, I I think I got to go courage. Wow. I think I got to go courage for the New York Times firing this woman because right. she shouldn't, she should have like abided by her agreement with her employer. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Where are you? Uh, I'm encouraged on, the, on this one as well. And uh, look, I think the way that I stand on this one is more like, I, I think I'm from the perspective Lauren Wolf was a reporter that was uh, working for a conservative publication. And, and there was as a journalist and this was a sort of the, the outcome, what I would even raise an eyebrow and be like, yeah, they probably should get rid of her if, if a, she's violating their, their guidelines. And to the degree that we have journalists, like I like the idea of having journalists that are not going to be outwardly just completely leaning one side versus the other, try to be as, as um, unbiased as, as possible to get better reporting. So from that standpoint, if I would apply that rule then, why would I think about it any differently here? Now, I think the part where I initially was more on the fence is that when it felt like it was a single tweet and a single comment, like that seems fairly minor to say that. But here, what at least what it sounds like, and based on what has come out since the story was initially reported, is that it seems to be a pattern of someone that's already was at least spoken with, of like, hey, like we've Chill. told you about this, yeah. you know, you cannot be continuing to do, doing mm-hmm. this. And it may be a case where just like it was just a continuous thing that was, that was that was coming out. And I think even like the comment about Trump administration being childish, of course they're being childish. He literally didn't show up for the inauguration event. Like that doesn't even need to be said. There's already plenty of childish, like the whole thing about the, did you hear about the butler that was like let go right before? <laughs> no. So so there was no. a moment where where the where, where uh, President Biden um, is trying to walk into like the White House and they can't get in because literally Trump had fired the butler earlier that day just I guess out of spite <laughs> so there was no one to open the door so they, they had to, like send someone in to open it but it's like yeah of course he's being childish like like to me it's like sure that's the least of the, of the issues what what I kind of come down on on, the, on this one the reason I think it, it is courage is that 
I give like I know the New York Times gets a lot of heat as well, just in what we just finished talking about, right? In terms of how much of it is like real news, how much is like super liberal in terms of what it's doing, and stifling conservative voices. And this at least feels like an attempt of saying of trying to rein it in and say, hey, we're gonna try to be more consistent. If we haven't in the past, we'll try to be more consistent about really having all about journalism, having news that everyone can trust, regardless of which political side you you fall under. And frankly, when we have someone that is blatantly disregarding our policy, who's been already spoken with more than once, but continues to show that political leaning one way or the other, we have to take action. Yep. And that, I give them courage for that. And they're going to get some heat, but I think they're going to be better off for it. And hopefully it's a signal to other reporters like, hey, we really do care about journalism. If you're going to be a journalist versus going to be a commentator, be a commentator, great. Commentators have opinions all day long. But if you're going to be a journalist, be a journalist. So for that, I give them, I give them courage. Well, two out of three ain't bad, Jesus. Yeah, pretty um, good. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Interesting. I like changing uh, changing horses midstream. Sometimes that's that's fun. So um, very good. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, you guys can also let us know how you think we did on Courage or Cringe. Um, comment, share your thoughts and opinions. Also, make sure to check out brandstorytelling.tv for that event that's coming up uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, the 27th, or today, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and uh, and check that out as well. There's a lot to learn there. Jesus, thank you very much. Another excellent show. Great week. Thank you. We'll see everybody again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.